0: Listener Production.
1: This is Come Out Wherever You Are, a podcast about coming out told by the people who have done it. I'm your host, Sean Zeps, and because this is a podcast about coming out, it's only fair that I go first. My name is Sean Zeps. I am a gay man who uses he, him pronouns. I first came out in early 2000. I was in a closet, which was such a great story. And I most recently came out on Saturday. I was at a restaurant in Newcastle and this couple was sitting next to me and they felt bad that I was eating alone, which I didn't feel bad about. They started talking to me and they referenced a girl, a wife. So I had to check them real fast. (laughs) Today, we are welcoming a brand new member to the Come Out Wherever You Are family. Tilly, can you introduce yourself? Tell us when you first came out, when you last came out, if you can remember, and then how you identified.
0: Um, I'm Tilly Lawless and I first came out when I was 14. I told one of my best friends that I was into girls. And to be honest, I can't remember the last, the specific last time I came out because it happens constantly in that clients especially assume that I'm straight because obviously I've just had sex with them. So usually it's like post-coital like lying in the bed and they'll say, do you have a boyfriend?
1: Oh. So…
0: Yeah, I'm kind of kind of constantly having to uh, address that assumption that I'm straight, which. To be honest, under those circumstances, I understand why they might assume I'm straight. Totally. But.
1: (laughs) I would say that's probably a little more unique than the average coming out story because you've (laughs) literally just had intercourse with somebody. And so it feels a little bit more appropriate than a stranger on the street.
0: Oh, totally. Mind you, I do also have people assume I'm straight constantly out and about just because I'm quite femme. Mm. Uh, And in regards to... Uh, identifying I usually refer to myself as a queer woman if I was pushed I might refer to myself as a lesbian or a dyke um yes yeah
1: we have so much fun stuff to unpack Tilly Lawless is a queer sex worker activist and writer her first book nothing but my body came out in 2021 and she is the host of the latest season of the ABC podcast tales tall and true which this time around tells the stories of seven sex workers from across Australia. As you might have guessed from the name of this episode, we are going to be talking a lot about sex. So this is a content warning. Listen with your headphones on. Here's Tilly. I gotta tell you, you're like a cult hero. There are so many of my friends when I told them I was talking to you, they freaked out. Oh, really? Yeah, just, I mean, you're a badass. But well, gay
0: guys or yes. girls? Okay,
1: yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, men just like are, are, adore you.
0: I mean, I am a fag hag. Yes,
1: so <laughs> fruit fly, fag hag, we adore you. So there's a lot to unpack because I've been watching from afar, but there's a lot to unpack in, in just the words that come out of your mouth, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. 14 is young-ish. Mm-hmm. I think you got to be a confident individual over the course of the last four years to know at a youngerish age who you are, and feel comfortable to talk about it. Did you grow up in an environment where either there were queer people around you or you felt safe that you could talk to people around you about your sexuality?
0: Okay, so I grew up in a small country town. I did know there were two lesbians in the town and there were two gay men, as I feel like it's kind of uh, what, what, <laughs> the, gay, the gay in the village, you yes, know? Yes, like. Yes. Um. So <laughs> I had seen... I was aware of homosexuality, but it definitely wasn't something that was normal or accepted. I will say that I think what made me comfortable with my sexuality from a young age, besides I've always kind of had, I suppose, kind of a bold and like outgoing sort of personality, was the fact that I was really um, hyper-involved with queer communities online from a young age. Oh, okay. So like I was, even though I like grew up on like a small rural property and I was quite isolated from other queer people, like physically, yep. I, you know, uh, played RPG like from like 12 to 15. So I was on like a lot of forums. I was into the early days of Tumblr. So I kind of was like really, you know, like Tumblr back when it was, like soft lesbian porn, you know, like just like all the gifs of like girls like making out and like pink taco lovers and all all those kind of vlogs. So (laughs) I realized quite young that I was into girls and I had the language to speak about it Mm. that I wouldn't have had if it wasn't for the internet.
1: I got to tell you, Tumblr is like 50% of our community's origin story. (laughs) (laughs) The number of times it comes up, not as a, a place to discover porn, even though it became that down the line. Um, But like you've just said, a soft introduction, it was a really good educational platform. You would find these like beautiful images, like these long images that would have like Q&As on how you could come out to someone or the definition of words. I remember it was the first time I had seen all of the sexual orientations and flags collated together in one image. Yes. I was like, why is this better at educating me about sexuality than
0: school totally and also the conversations back and forth between people and also the way it created this kind of like uh global environment of like i mean i was i will say i think that the notions of queerness i had were very american Mm. notions because it was mainly coming from tumblr yeah and that's something that i've kind of as i've grown and had more physical spaces with queer community in sydney for example i've kind of separated myself from some of the things that I perceive as more American, like pride, for example, which yeah. to me is like a very very American like notion and sensibility. but yeah, i'm I'm very grateful for uh, Tumblr and that community in my teens.
1: Yeah. So you come out at fourteen, you tell a friend how do they react?
0: She was very accepting. I can't remember if she was that surprised. I think I said I, I said I was bisexual. Mm-hmm. I like even though I was a I wasn't actually. I was only into girls at that point saying I was bi seemed like a much easier step than yeah. saying I was gay. Yes. So I think she was I think she was okay with it and then I I think I told some other people at school when I was 15 so like mm. a few months later I kind of like let it sit for a little bit but I did call myself bi I think for like the first year and a half and I was one of those people that accidentally uh invalidates bisexuality by using it as a stepping stone to announce my gayness. I'm so
1: excited we get to unpack this (laughs) because most of the people that I've had a chance to talk to this about, me in particular, I really struggled. I went through a phase where I felt like such a shithead Mm. for the number of people who came out as bisexual to the people that I came out bisexual to who had, I had helped plant a seed in their head that that was bullshit. And so when mm. other people after me came out as bi, they were like, yeah, okay, we've already seen Sean yeah. on his way to Gayville. <laughs> you too. But I am gay still. Mm. And you have gone through a journey. And now you kind of refer to yourself as queer largely. And we'll talk a little bit about your sexual practices and what you do for work and all of that. Mm-hmm. But do you feel
0: bad about that? Or uh, is it something
1: you don't think about. I
0: mean, I was 15, 14, mm-hmm. 15. Maybe if I was doing that in my 20s, I might feel some guilt at that age. Like you look back, you're like, I was so young. I was in a town that wasn't accepting of homosexuality. Yeah. Like I don't really hold it against myself for using, for using the term bi. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Oftentimes when we talk about the coming out experience, usually I'd say the community links that moment, the one, as the time they tell their parents and how their parents react. Did you have the opportunity to come out to parental people in your life?
0: Um, so that's was never. I I, I don't have a relationship with my mum, and I haven't since I was around that age, actually. So I never and have never told her directly that I was gay. Um, so I'm not sure what her her reaction was. Like, we don't have a relationship for other reasons. Like, apart from that, okay. Um, my dad, I told at around sixteen, I think, and he wasn't. Anti it, he just didn't believe it. You know, he thought I was going through a phase. You know, sure. he was like, "You're living in a small country town. Like, you haven't met many nice boys yet. You know, like once you move to Sydney, you'll meet like more interesting boys." He's like, "Of course, you're interested in girls in a small country town. Like, they're all country the boys. The guys are garbage know? here. Yeah, exactly. But in the city, <laughs> exactly. And I will say, it took him, I would say maybe, t- maybe ten years. Like, you know, till my mid twenties that he finally accepted. Oh no, she's like. This is not a phase, you know. My extended family, a lot of my extended family are Christian and quite a conservative Christian in a number of ways. So it didn't go down so well with them, but they also the fact of of my work complicated that relationship too so for sure. me now it's hard to separate the hostility i have from some of my extended family hard to separate which is homophobia and which is whore phobia, you know yes yeah and they were also very confused when they found out i was a sex worker because they were like but we thought she was into girls
1: <laughs> oh do you think there's a lot of people who just think sex work is only a straight thing
0: yeah, 100%. <laughs> wow, that yeah. blows my mind. <laughs> I I've
1: been on I'm in the wrong part of the internet clearly. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're in our little queer bubble. Yes. Yeah. So, that
1: 10-year phase you were going through through your father's lens, is that you having to constantly educate to get him to that place or did that happen on his own?
0: I think there was a lot of educating. I will say my dad, you know, he's in his 70s. He's a, he's a really wonderful, intelligent, like uh, left-wing person who's also like happy to absorb things but he did grow up with you know it was a homophobic time that he grew up in he mm. also was uh, like had to deal with like abuse in high school from male teachers and had a distrust of gay men specifically mm. because of um, pedophiles that he grew up around yeah and so I think for him it was difficult for him to separate like for example I had to explain to him when I was younger that like pedophiles often don't see gender as such you know what i mean it's not like it's not like them gay men they yeah. are men who are into children yes they don't care if the child is a boy or a girl it just they often end up abusing people of the same gender because it's easier for them to mm. get access to people of the same gender and that was a turning point for him because he hadn't realized that you know yeah for him growing up around these abusive older men it had seemed to him that that was homosexuality or sure. you know so i think that there were other things that he had to overcome in his, in his journey with my sexuality that was to do with his own trauma, to be mm. honest. And I think it's been a really, not that, you know, gay people should exist to change the minds of people who might be homophobic, but I think it's been a really wonderful thing for him to not only have me be gay, but I have so many gay male friends and they all come around and spend time with me and he's become close to gay men and been able to trust them. Which I think is like has been a really wonderful thing after his childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh.
1: I mean, there's a lot to unpack in that exact window of time. Men and women between the ages of like 50 and 90 who have really only had completely justifiably the worst education around homosexuality at large. Mm if we just took a poll of the average person in the globe in that age bracket and said, like, what are three truths about queer people? Truths. They would be able to be like, thrust out a bunch of really negative words. Mm. HIV, AIDS, death. Yeah. Maybe some partying. And then I guess they'll. a lot of them would bring in the church because a yeah. lot of those labels around homosexuality had something to do with religion, pedophilia. And to think that any of that Belief system would be unjustified, or that they would be picking that out of nowhere, or that there, there wasn't a pattern that they could latch onto mm. and hold onto, is a little far fetched. Like, oftentimes when we're really upset at people, you've just framed it beautifully, which is why I'm driving at home here, because I was so angry for such a long time that those people in my life, also Roman Catholic, also mm. grew up in that community, weren't willing to like take a new look at something, but they just believed that pattern. Mm. to be true. I mean, it was on the Sydney Morning Herald like week after week for years yeah. that we were these types of people. And so to do that education, well, one, it's a lot of pressure on us. I guess you have to like slowly but surely keep educating. I don't know. Teaching an old dog new tricks is possible.
0: Oh, it, 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 completely, it completely is. Yeah. Mm. Like my dad is definitely, you know, he's in his 70s now and he's... um definitely very open-minded and i would say knows a lot more than the average person in their 70s about queer issues but it definitely definitely took some time like he was i will say he was homophobic and i use that term in the in the original sense of the term as in terms of phobia as in fear like he was scared oh. of gay men yep. because of his experiences of as a child yes so it was like and it's interesting for me because obviously i think homophobia is a terrible thing and a lot of people are homophobic because they're bigots, Yes, you know, but then for me having this personal experience with him, I was like, wow, I can see that this this homophobia in you comes from trauma, mm. you know, which doesn't mean it's not dangerous and a terrible thing, but like meant that I had more patience with it, you know?
1: Yeah. We've never once spoken about the actual phobia part of that, that of that phrase and what that means. And I've never, ever until this moment unpacked the genuine and justified fear that some people might have for any community based Mm -hmm. off of their personal experience. Even if it wasn't firsthand, I know that there are people who are hypochondriacs, people who are really fearful of disease. Like those are real rooted issues that people work through with mental health professionals. And if you were alive during the HIV and AIDS epidemic and this fear grew inside of you of sexual intercourse, Mm -hmm. I've, I've read about this, people who grew up queer or allies or bigots who were being educated at school, at home, that they should be fearful of sexual intercourse mm. and that it could lead to STIs or worse or death and that how that would challenge your entire relationship to someone who's coming out to you later in life and what that would mean, like a fear, yeah. a genuine fear and not just my Bible says you're Totally, center. and
0: that's where the fear of like or judgment of gay men's promiscuity can mm. come from. They're like, don't you realize that sex is dangerous? We shouldn't be having sex with multiple people. This is something that can kill us, you know? Like so much much stuff comes from fear, which is not to excuse it. But I think it's always important to understand where it comes from. So then you can do your best to change minds. Because like responding to someone who's scared with anger doesn't help anything, you know?
1: Yeah, you're right. And also, I guess it's easier said than done when it's a stranger. Like if it's someone on the street who's just like dyke and you're like, okay, I actually don't need to unpack this. But if it's someone you care about, if it's someone you're related to, I mean, you get to make that decision. And am I going to give them a benefit of the doubt and understand where they're coming from so that we can work towards a resolution or whatever, a solution or not. And that's fine too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. you know, completely. Either, Either way that you're capable of doing. But when it came to my dad, I was like, you know what? I love him and I've got the energy to educate him on things. And if I don't, Educate him on this stuff as he's like gay daughter. I'm like, who's going to?
1: Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly.
0: You're so right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, I would argue as mm-hmm. a gay man that the types of interactions I've had over my lifetime that fall into either the homophobic or bigoted category are usually a lot less sexual. They're a lot less like my sexuality is not there they don't have a right to that information. Whereas my experience of having many lesbian and queer women as friends has been that from a very young age, then liking women was like a very sexual thing mm-hmm. to men as yeah. if your interactions with other women was theirs. They had a yeah. right to it. Because of your journey and what you've done for a living, I'm really interested in, in those formative years of you coming out and being lesbian, being with other women, Did that happen to you on a regular basis and how did you deal with it back then?
0: Oh, totally. Like, I mean, I think this is a line that's thrown around a lot, but basically like lesbians are fetishized, whereas like gay men are dehumanized. But like fetishizing is just another form of dehumanizing, Mm. you know, like it's still homophobia just coming out in a completely different way. So like, yeah, with my first girlfriend, you know, we dated from when I was 17 to 19. So we were still in high school. We would have people come up to us and parties and be like, oh, so, you know, threesome like, you know, guys would just assume us being together was automatic entry for group sex, Mm. you know? So it's totally a thing. And I mean, I, for the first few years of doing sex work, I had to reconcile myself with the fact that I was often playing into this lesbian fetish in order to make money, you know? And I still do that, you know? Like, I have men, men book me for lesbian threesomes where it is that fantasy for them that there's two women who just like want, want him completely, you know, and he's like, um, and like we can't control, you know, our cravings for him even though we're like both gay and like whatever. Um, so I, I make money off that. But I think that knowing that I have always used that money to like go and live my lesbian reality, you know, and like these, these fantasies that I play don't take away from the reality of my life.
1: Yes. I mean, there's power and beauty in the way that you can reframe that as a business decision.
0: Mm.
1: I'm guessing, as a young person, I'm trying to wrap my head around how that would challenge your identity in general. Like that the, there's a constant tie back to fucking men. Like a con like even your own desire to just be with women, the universe, this like heteronormative mm. society is like, but it's still about like we're gonna make this about us still. We're gonna challenge your relationship because men are the only option in Totally. Their mind.
0: And I mean, I think that's perhaps why a lot of queer women are stereotyped as misandrist, you mm. know, like hating men because they, you know, sometimes are resentful of this constant linking back to men or this idea that every person's life should revolve around men. For me, I feel like I didn't react in that way. I went more the way of like, I don't even allow men to make me angry because I don't want to have any emotional reaction to men. Mm. I, To be honest, I don't think about straight men very often. Besides my engagement with them at work. Yeah. They don't factor into my consciousness. And I sometimes find this whole like brand of feminism that is about like men are trash, like chuck men in the bin. Besides the fact that that's being critiqued as like problematic when it, you know, comes from white women and is like dismissing yeah. all men, you know, um, you know, especially like black and brown men who are marginalized in their own ways. Mm. That kind of feminism doesn't speak to me because I'm like, I mean, I'm not even thinking about men to throw them in the bin, yeah. you know? my Like my life is full of, you know, queer people and women and and men just aren't factoring into my consciousness very much. Mm. So like, sure, like if a guy reduced me and my girlfriend's like relationship to a fetish for their entertainment, like I'd be like, oh, that's annoying. But then it would be gone from my head a minute later. You yeah. Know?
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can relate so aggressively. It hurts. <laughs> when I see another article that's like, straight men does this. And people are freaking out in the comment section. I'm like, I thought we knew they were trash. That's why I, uh, uh, isn't, I? aren't we on the same page here? are
0: we just ignoring them? I, I thought, I'm like, I thought you know, we were there. i giving this, them this time, you know, like mm. all this outrage. I feel like it's just like a constant like thing of outrage. But you know what? I think a lot of the people who are writing that shit are people who who, who date straight men.
1: Yeah. So they actually
0: have to continue. Sure. We got to make this better. We got to
1: make this better. We got to fix it. Exactly.
0: Whereas you and I can be like, I just won't have anything to do with
1: it. No, 100%. So chicken or egg (laughs) question. What comes first? Stepping into sex work or coming to terms with your queerness?
0: Oh, definitely coming to terms with my queerness. So I, yeah, I came out around 14, 15. Only slept with women actually till I was 19 Then only dated women. Slept with a guy when I was nineteen was like, oh, that was an anti-climax In that it was so easy. <laughs> oh, okay,
1: okay <laughs> like okay, not okay. as in like <laughs> yeah, it wasn't it was good. Anticlimax. Like, no,
0: I just was like, because like with women you have to make so much more effort, like to make them come, and like whereas like with a guy you just like put them in doggy and they come, and you're like that was it. Like so, I you know had sex with a guy and then was like, wow, that was really easy, and then I was like well, I need money. Maybe I'll try sex work. Mm. So, um, you know, called up an escort agency with a friend and like started straight away. And the first client I slept with was only the second man Mm. I'd ever slept with. So, yeah, I definitely had already was quite, I guess, uh, mature in my queerness for the age I was at, Mm. as in like had had multiple relationships with women by the time I started sex work. And I think that was a... Probably a very good thing for me to be settled in my sexuality when I came to sex work.
1: Yeah, I would think yeah. so too. The reason I even asked was oftentimes when I get a chance to speak to pansexual, queer, bisexual individuals about their the exploration phase that has mm. them kind of identify uh, who they truly are, they often talk about discovering the different types of sex, uh, sex that happens uh, that they enjoy unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, a threesome where they really enjoyed it in a way they didn't appreciate or discovering a specific type of porn and and coming to terms with the fact that it didn't discuss them the way that it might have or they thought it might have when they were mm-hmm. younger. Or what we can also unpack is uh, physical stimulation versus emotional stimulation. Mm-hmm. So falling mm-hmm. in love with a woman at a young age, only being able to fall in love with women and then having a sexual interaction, having that be separate from the heart versus the body. Yeah. And it's a leading question because I'm projecting, but I always just kind of thought queer people would be better at exploring those phases innately. If you're a lesbian or gay, you're surrounded by community who talks a little bit more openly about sex. I don't know if that's made up.
0: I think so. And I think, I mean, I also find that sex workers are are often better at at navigating sort of those boundaries and differentiations between types of sex. Mm. I will say the, the learning of like, all the things you're listing, like the difference between emotional sex and, um, you know, more just fun physical sex, uh, the difference between having sexual attraction to someone versus having sexual compatibility with someone, um, what kinks you can find you're into that you, you completely surprise you, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That has been an unending journey for me. Like mm. that, is, that, is, that is still going. I often still engage in something, a role play at work that I would never have thought of doing. And I'm like, wow, that was actually really hot and fun, you know? So I think that, and I mean, I think life might become boring if we didn't have new things to learn and yeah. have unfold within us through through the decades of being alive. So yeah. I'm glad that that is continuing for me. And like, I still very much have a curiosity mm. in, in sex and what I engage in. Yeah.
1: Let's go back to straight people, even though we don't talk about, we don't think about <laughs> straight men all that often. I have slept with a lot of straight, quote, straight men in my lifetime uh, who explore their sexuality outside of their straight relationship. Yeah. And when you talk to the women who are in those relationships and the men, I often hear either judgment, oh, that's disgusting. I would never let that happen. Monogamy is the only way. Or mm-hmm. like it's a it's a queer thing. Well, queer people do that. The promiscuous, yeah. fun, wild stuff. But that's not what we're about. And I'm wondering as, as a sex worker, when you're getting an opportunity to meet men and women who are using the services to explore and experiment Mm -hmm. if that is maybe a problem in general with gay straight sex?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I think straight people are trapped by monogamy. Mm. Um, A lot of the men I have, or actually most of the men I see who are like already in a relationship, like whether married or whatever, um, what they're coming to me for is sex that they wouldn't have with their partner. Yeah. You know, so maybe like golden showers or like role plays or some some sort of like fetishy type stuff mm. that they either, I don't know whether they've raised it with their partner and their partner said no, or um, they just don't even feel comfortable raising yeah. with their partner. And the fact that they feel like they have to step outside, I don't think there's anything wrong with stepping outside the relationship when you're open about it, you know, but the fact that they have to secretly step outside of the relationship yeah. to engage in these fetishes, to me, shows what a real problem there is with the culture of monogamy, that Mm. these conversations aren't being had openly. Interestingly, this is just making me think of this. Like, obviously, there's been a few big cheating scandals in straight culture that, like, I mean, I haven't been following them much, but there's, like, some try guy and the Adam Levine guy both, like, cheat on their partners. And I um, saw this tweet that was, like, straight men, you know, fucked up, but they're always cheating, blah, blah. Like, straight women should start cheating, too, to make it even. And I thought that was such an interesting tweet because I was, like, Straight women are cheating too. Yeah, yeah, They're just yeah. not getting caught. Yes. Every single one of my straight friends, female friends has cheated on their boyfriend. Their boyfriend just never ever knows about it. Mm. Like so it's like monogamy obviously isn't working either way for the men or the women. Oh. And to be honest, I find that often the straight women I know have more like these like very long sort of emotional affairs. Mm. The guys are more like doing these like kinky things at the brothel or whatever, and the women are having like a an affair with a coworker or whatever. So like um, I don't know. That's a, another one of those things where I'm like when people are like, men are trash, men are trash, they're cheating. I'm like, straight people are all cheating. Absolutely. That, I, think, I think monogamy is only held up mm. by cheating. A hundred percent. Well,
1: that's why I've always, when I say that gay sex is, queer sex is better sex, I don't actually mean that like the sex that we're having is better than straight people. That's ridiculous. What I mean is honesty and communication. Yeah. What I need. Yeah. Because When I have this conversation, I've been in and out of open relationships for as long as I've been sexually active. Whenever I communicate that to straight people, women, let's just focus and isolate on it. We have these intense conversations where they say, I could never have those conversations. I will never have those conversations. If I did, the relationship would end. And the idea that your sex life is not rooted in honesty Mm I would like to explore. I am thinking about exploring. I'm not getting fully what I want out of this. I did a little poll at a dinner party once with all girls. How many of you have told a man that he's a bad kisser? And it was like two people raised their hands. You do that same poll around gay men and it's like 100% of people. (laughs) And I've just never gotten a chance to really think a lot more about the power of brutal honesty in getting your nut. Like I want to get the best nut possible and here's what I'd like to explore and try, and not have that be damaging to your relationship or a bad like an mm. attack mm-hmm. on the romance mm-hmm. that you possibly have. Is are a majority of your customers quote straight?
0: Yeah, most of them are straight men. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say how many of them might be men who engage with in sex with other men and don't say. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole like you know like in the closet thing or like mm. cultural thing or whatever. I don't I don't know, but yes, they present to me as entirely straight men
1: because are queer women not needing to leverage the service as much
0: i don't think it's that. i think it's that it's it's a cultural thing that it's less socially acceptable for women to pay for sex Mm. like men will come in in groups you know like they go to the strip club together they go drinking together and they all head to the brothel together Yep, women would never go to a brothel together to book a bunch of book a bunch of people and then the other thing is, women have less expendable income than men, so they can't necessarily. At the end of the day, like seeing a sex worker is, you know, it's not a necessity. It's kind of a, it's kind of a luxury, you yeah. know. Um, and it can still be, you know, a luxury that can be affordable to working class people, mm. but um, yeah, women don't have the money necessarily to spend on that regularly. And when women do have an expendable income, like. Uh, like studies have shown, I can't remember which studies, but like basically women are more likely to spend that on dependents, you know, Mm -hmm. like children or like their partner or like their parents that they're looking after. So they're less likely to spend that on sexual services for themselves. But I do get a lot of couples book me, where the woman's bi and like the husband's straight or whatever. Um, So I see a lot of women clients in threesomes, but I only occasionally get a woman book me one-on-one.
1: Yeah. What have you learned about your sexuality through sex work?
0: Mm. Wow. Yeah, so besides, I think a lot of fetish things that I would never have tried myself, I've also learned how sex isn't intrinsically linked to romance or Mm -hmm. emotion. Like, I can have fun, good, amazing sex with someone I wouldn't talk to on the street. I wouldn't interact with at a party. I would never even be at the same party as them. I don't find remotely attractive. But when we begin to touch each other, our bodies communicate in ways that just work. And then also I can have terrible sex with someone who I think is amazing and interesting and charismatic and hot. I think that it's really taught me to separate um, the value of sex from the person itself. Like... I think that I really see sex as, for, for me, sex is now like a conversation. Yeah. In that, like, I think it's, it's something that can occur between two or more people that fluctuates, is organic, is kind of unpredictable. Sometimes you find yourself enjoying it. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, kind of a, it's a back and forth. It's like not something that you can easily pin down. I don't think there's like conversation. I don't think you can make like notes of sex as to what makes good or bad sex because I think it's something that exists between the people involved in that moment, you know? Is that?
1: (laughs) I don't know. And that's why I'm reacting the way (laughs) I'm reacting. Because I would say one of the greatest gifts I just got Mm -hmm. (laughs) this one moment is I would say on average, the the average person believes that their type is what guides them to soulmates. Like they have a yeah. specific type and that's the only people they've slept with, the only people they tried to sleep with. So they're ignoring such a massive chunk of humans who they could have unbelievable sex with. exactly, Or could be their soulmates. Yeah. And how you like shake society up to that, like how we get out of this like standard practice of I'm only attracted physically on paper to a specific type of person who's probably just randomly diagnosed through the early foundation of your like sexual discovery. Mm -hmm. Let's just unpack that separately. And in the moment, I'm realizing what we're looking for goes back to the conversation about getting the nut you really want who's going to fulfill you inside of you is not always the person who you're just drawn to on the street. That is, feels like a newer concept to someone like me who has basically been dating the same types of people for 30 mm. years.
0: I mean maybe you have to fuck a few thousand people like I have to get to that point.
1: Mm, Hey, (laughs) (laughs) or I can learn from you and then benefit in my real life. Hey. But
0: yeah, for example, I saw a uh, client last night who was this uh, young Singaporean boy and I'll call him a boy because he was younger than me and also looked a lot younger than me. And, you know, really nerdy, dweeby looking boy, like full face of um, pimples. And he honestly fucked me so well like so tenderly fucked me the way a lesbian would fuck me oh, yes. it was like some of the best sex of my life and like I just was like wow I would never have expected that from you like you're just like a dweeby dweeby young boy you know yeah, and yeah, I'm not yeah. into people who are younger than me anyway mm. so that would have and I'm not into younger boys either and like yeah just, just things like that you're like wow this is really sexual compatibility is not tied to attraction
1: is there no? a way to fix that outside of um, those dating environments where you like rotate through a bunch of people? Is there a way for us as a society to get into a habit of like pushing ourselves out of our sexual comfort? I actually
0: don't know because I think that a lot of people have sex for a different reason to what I have sex for. Like mm. I have sex for, you know, money, but also have sex for fun. Yeah. I think a lot of people have sex for validation. When people are having sex for validation, I think they are getting off Not on the sex itself necessarily, but who they're fucking. Because they're like, I'm hot enough to have pulled this person or like this, me being into this person reflects my own value back to to me. So I think first people have to divorce themselves from the relationship of sex for validation. And I think that's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. How
1: can you educate someone at such a young age (laughs) without explaining to them? To be
0: honest, I think it's that you have to have validation, enough validation or like strong sense of self in other parts of your life that you don't seek validation through sex in Mm. order to get to that point.
1: Oh, I just know you're so right. I've had so many conversations in the last 30 days, two in particular that are top of mind that are making me giggle about someone saying I had the best sex of my life. And I was like, did you come like crazy? And they're like, oh, I didn't come. I was like, oh, Okay and what was so great about it. And it was, now what I'm realizing was more about what they pulled. they
0: like, the he person was so he, yeah, 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 he was six foot four, he had six pack. He was a
1: professional basketball yeah. <laughs> player. I was like, but he didn't make you come. Yeah. Did it feel great? I mean, that wasn't even in, that was not what they meant. Yeah, And that meant something that was exciting to them in that moment with me to share the story because yeah. my reaction was like, show me a picture, yeah. slay. And then they,
0: yeah, then they get some sort of social cachet of like having fucked this really hot person. Yes. It's like, I mean, I think it's a real, <laughs> that whole like also social status um, from like fucking like people who are perceived as desirable is a very real thing in the gay guy community. 100%. Yeah, I okay. think more so even than in in with lesbians.
1: I would agree. Yeah. I've said it on the show many a times before but there is no person more judgmental than a gay man. Mm. Like when I moved to Sydney I had someone come up to me and say like you got to gain weight or lose you can't be stuck in the middle and that's very <laughs> like the Sydney energy of like pull it together or go all out. Like either be a sloppy yeah. bear like whatever or pull it together and that energy like follows you around the queer community in a way that I don't always even see amongst straight people, which is yeah.
0: fascinating.
1: Speaking of queer people uh, versus straight people, what you do for a living, is it true that straight people are harder on you for the career choice than queer people? Or are queer people just as judgmental and confused?
0: No, straight people are definitely harder on you. I think that's just because mm-hmm. queer people have been... Ex- well, people... Not necessarily Mm. queer people generally, but I would say queer people immersed in a um, inner city queer community Mm. have been more exposed to sex workers generally. That's in Australia, in Sydney or Melbourne, and also somewhere like Berlin, you would find, I find queer people very accepting of sex work. Somewhere like London, less so, Mm. you know. I haven't spent much time in America, so I can't speak to that. But um, I think, yeah, the Australian queer scene is particularly accepting of sex work.
1: But then it goes back to my beginning part of the conversation, which is why are queer people not using sex work as a way to explore and have fun in a bigger way?
0: Okay. Queer women uh, tend to be lower socioeconomic status than queer men. They Mm -hmm. tend to earn Mm -hmm. less money. So I think genuinely with queer women, they maybe don't have the money to spend on sex workers. I think gay men are seeing sex workers. It's just more informal, you know? Like a lot of my gay guy friends who do dabble in sex work every now and again We'll, you know, maybe get a message from a guy on Grindr. The guy says, I want to suck your cock. My friend will say, I'm too tired. I don't feel like it. the guy will be like, what about for a hundred bucks? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. okay. walks down the road, does it. So there are definitely men just, you know, gay men in the community just actually accessing sex work in just a way more so casual right. way. Mm. There's a really amazing um, black gay writer, Brontes Purnell. Who wrote this book? Have American? you read it? Yeah, he's American, yeah, yeah, yeah. called a uh, hundred or a hundred one boyfriends. I can't remember. Maybe it's a hundred boyfriends. I'm probably thinking of hundred one Dalmatians. <laughs> anyway, he wrote this book called a hundred boyfriends, and um, like it's autobiographical about like just his dating history and stuff. And the thing I find most interesting about it is he has being both a client and a sex worker. You know, he speaks about being paid for sex in his youth. And then as he gets a bit older and a bit lazier and, you know, he can't be bothered going to, you know, a a party to pick up. He'd rather just have someone come to his house ready. He pays for sex work himself. Yeah. So, like, I find it really interesting how in the gay guy community, those boundaries between client and um, worker are more blurred because a lot of gay boys maybe start off, and and that comes down to desirability politics, but when they're young, they can charge for sex. And when they're older, they need to pay for sex. It's a, it's a thing. I think it's just they're not necessarily going to brothels. And I mean, actually, the only gay male brothel in Sydney closed during the pandemic. So there isn't a brothel for them to go to anymore. Okay. Yeah.
1: It's definitely like a lot less of a public conversation when I think of sex work. Like and the most intellectual and educated perspective i can it just often is usually women talking about sexual i mean that's because
0: gay men women sex workers we're having to defend ourselves and speak about sex worker rights because people see like women sex workers as being exploited Mm. gay male sex workers don't have to defend themselves because no one's trying to shut it down so that's why there's less of a conversation around it is because there's less need for a conversation
1: there's like such a negative connotation and reputation that we have about our promiscuity specifically amongst men that oftentimes you're right when I hear about people paying for or sleeping around or doing things that I as a younger version of myself would think of as like really naughty I'm never as shocked when a gay man tells me that they did it ever because my like understanding of what's possible within the community is clouded by our history whereas I'm just always like my little monkey brain, my little baby kid 13-year-old who doesn't know anything about the world hears of it happening to a woman and I like pay attention in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a clear proof that as someone who's a member of the community who makes a living talking about queer rights is still my initial thought is still that and that's where the problems are or Mm -hmm. that's where they come from. So we've unpicked everything I wanted to cover except for one little thing from your initial two sentences Mm -hmm. and that's, that you sometimes have to come out to your partners after you've had sex with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, to clients. Yeah. To a client. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, obviously, in your personal life, I imagine it's a little bit easier. But through the lens of having a client and coming out to them, is there a line where you decide, based off of what's just happened, that you are not going to come out to them?
0: Oh yeah, totally. Often, to be honest, I, I, um, if they ask, do I have a boyfriend? I just say no at first. But then if they push i usually only tell them if i'm into girls if they then push to go on a date with me okay like then they'll be like oh so you're single so like blah 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 and then i'm like oh no actually i only date girls or if they're like oh why don't you have a boyfriend like a girl like you like you should have a boyfriend that's when i tell them okay because like i don't you know some clients i do get intense homophobia from clients sometimes so like it's not always in my best interest to say outright that i'm into girls so it's only if they kind of push me into a corner where i'm like it's actually better for me now to say me saying I'm gay might be a back off mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. Then I'll say it. I mean, sometimes that doesn't work because I say it and then they're like, well, that's so hot. Like, you know, like, yeah. but then it usually goes in my favor because they're like, next time I'm going to book you with another girl. And sure. I'm like, great. Great. Like, See you next yeah. <laughs> week.
1: Well, I guess I, the reason I asked is it yeah. it feels to me like a career that has the potential to be more dangerous than say what I do for mm-hmm. a living here in this podcast studio and so I imagine there's like, your mind has to like compartmentalize, but like 14 different ways. If I come out, is am I going to book another job? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. If I come out, are we going to have a better relationship next time? Mm-hmm. If I come out, is this person never going to want to see me again? If I come out, is this going to potentially be dangerous? Like, yeah. does your brain have to do that? You
0: totally have to assess, but I will say as a feminine woman, and I think especially like a femme who presents very femme in my bookings anyway, mm. I'm never too worried about dangerous homophobia from them because they're far more likely to fetishize me i think it would be far different if i was, say like a butch queer woman who was just kind of in femme drag you Mm, know mm. like but because i'm just like quite feminine the you know so much of homophobia also comes from like people's issues around gender rather than necessarily sexuality anyway and they're never going to because i'm womanly enough for them they're not going to project that kind of like fear of diverse gender stuff onto me, you know? So I'm I'm usually more like, am I going to lose them as a client or am I going to get another booking from this rather than like, Mm. is this going to escalate in a dangerous way, you know?
1: Mm, Of course, that makes total sense to me. Are you telling these types of stories in your current project? You're doing a podcast with the ABC, right?
0: Yeah, so I've just... Done, well, I actually only tell one story on the podcast, okay. which is uh, Tall Tales and Truth, because it's a bunch of like maybe six or seven uh, sex worker stories from yeah. like different sex workers. And actually, I do in my story speak about being booked by a pregnant woman, which was really, really amazing. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, that's fascinating.
0: <laughs> she was seven months along and had never been with a woman before, and her pregnancy hormones made her want to try it. <laughs> Her husband left the house for the three hours she booked me for so it could be her own private experience. I'd never been up close to a pregnant woman before and I'd certainly never fucked one. Her breasts were firmer than silicone implants, blue veins showing through the pail. Beforehand I had been nervous, had quizzed friends with children about what positions are best to have sex whilst heavily pregnant, had confided to my partner my fears about topping her incorrectly, somehow squishing her belly. I'm not as fragile as you think, she said when she saw me hesitating. I held her belly in awe. She was the softest kisser, and inside she felt no different to any other woman I have fucked. I expected it to be different somehow. Yeah, there's a whole variety of stories. Like, I uh, deliberately selected people that had had all sorts of different experiences with sex work. Like, I wanted, you know, like, the funny stories and the sad stories and, like, the uplifting stories and all, all that kind of stuff because I feel like so often sex workers are forced into being, like, one or other, in a dichotomy, you know, mm. like empowered or like uh, completely like uh, despised or whatever. So yeah, it's a real it's a real mix of stories from um sex workers across Australia, and yeah, I recommend listening to it
1: if people are really fascinated by this conversation and they want to go and listen to the ABC show, is there a specific episode that you think queer people might be really drawn to as like a, a gateway to the show?
0: There's one episode in particular which I think is really interesting and uh, is Chantelle. She's a trans woman in her, I mean, I don't want to offend her, but I think in her 50s, Mm -hmm. um, who worked as a sex worker through the 80s when like obviously it was far more difficult being trans and there was far less conversation around it. Uh, And she just has like a a really interesting story as being, you know, a a sex worker who worked in a different era under different uh, legal policy than there is today and also working as a trans woman. Mm -hmm. I was really, really happy to have got her on the podcast
1: oh that's huge i will be listening we'll also put that specific episode into the show notes
0: perfect yeah (laughs) so
1: looking back on your kind of story your path from the moment at 14 years old till now it's a lame question but it's a question that proves to be valuable to Mm -hmm. young queer people who are listening but you think back to that time and is there a conversation you'd like to have with that 14 year old about the future of, uh, of what it means to be queer
0: I think the only thing I would say to me as a 14-year-old was don't feel like, because my queerness was doubted so much because I was feminine, Mm. don't feel like you have to prove your queerness by growing up with straight guys. That was the only thing I did a little bit as like a teen. I would like talk about women that I found hot with straight guys, both to, because they were always hitting on me and I need to make it clear that I wasn't into them. Yeah. But also to prove my sexuality to Mm. them because they, well, I was always called a fake lesbian through high school, you know? Yes. So like, I would be like, whoa, like, yeah, look at her tits. Like, they're amazing. Ways, I would never speak about women like that now. Like, that's just like, mm-hmm. not me. But like, I went into kind of this like, bro like, like, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, objectification of women in order to legitimize my sexuality. And because that was the only way I'd been shown in the media to be, attracted to women was through objectifying them, you know? Of course.
1: It's so funny that so many queer people end up admitting to something so similar that we think is just a straight problem. (laughs) Because I did the exact same damn thing. I found myself next to the best basketball players just going to this dark, dirty, disgusting place (laughs) that is not anywhere inside of my being. (laughs) Yeah. This isn't just straight men who are struggling. It's also (laughs) us closeted or not so closeted, like trying to conform. That's great. (laughs) Thank you for coming on. I'm just absolutely fascinated. My pleasure. It's been
0: fun. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay, we are back. How are you going? How are you feeling? If this episode left you wanting more information about our wonderful LGBTQIA plus alphabet, then you should check out Minus18. They're Australia's LGBTQIA plus charity. They have heaps of resources on their website and they run trainings for workplaces and classrooms. Minus18 are on all socials at minus18youth and their website is minus18.org.au. But Minus18 isn't a helpline. So if you're looking for support, you can call Q Life on one 800 184 for free every day from 3 p.m. till midnight. If you're feeling anxious and not up to talking on the phone, they also have web chat at qlife.org.au. Lifeline is also available 24 hours a day for crisis support and suicide prevention. Their number is 13 11 14. If you want to be a part of the Come Out Wherever You Are community, you can slide into our DMs on Instagram at Come Out Wherever You Are. You can also follow me at Sean Zepps. That's S E A N S Z E P S. Come Out Wherever You Are is presented by me, Sean Zepps. Our lovely producer is Lindsay Grain. Our executive producer is Lema Bakharia. And we can't forget our audio producer, Chris Mosh. See you soon.